Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today on Pediatrics Now, we're talking about IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. According to the New York Times, it's rising in incidence and prevalence throughout the world, and gastroenterologists are trying to figure out why it shows up when it does in different people. Joining us in the podcast studio today is Dr. Jay Shaw, Director of Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease at UT Health San Antonio. Thanks for being here, Jay. Happy to be here. Exciting. Dr. Shaw has been practicing medicine for seven years, attended medical school at University of North Texas Health Science Center, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. He did his residency here at UT Health San Antonio and GI fellowship at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. His clinical focus is on IBD and medical student resident education. And Jay, I want to mention you're now seeing patients at UT Health's pretty new clinic on Wurzbach and Fredericksburg. Absolutely, yeah. We started there a few months ago. There's a brand new clinic, a gateway building uh, on the corner of Horsbach and Fredericksburg. Uh, it's a UT pediatrics clinic and a gorgeous brand new building. Um, so uh, happy to see patients over there. And that phone number, in case you're interested, our listeners are interested, it's 210-450-7334. Jay, tell us a line or two about yourself. Yeah, so as Holly mentioned, uh, I trained here uh, in San Antonio at UT Health uh, for my pediatrics residency. Had an amazing experience. Some of the best attendings that I've worked with um, uh, were around me. And so when I left for fellowship uh, to Nashville, went to Vanderbilt, and I learned so much about the field of GI, I knew I wanted to come back to my sort of stomping grounds, my home grounds, where I had learned so much and had such a positive uh, experience and, and camaraderie. So came back here to San Antonio. I'm a native Texan, so I knew I wanted to come back to the state at some point uh, in, in, in one of the major cities, originally from Dallas. And um, we've really tried to build our inflammatory bowel disease program here. Uh, here at UT Health San Antonio. I've had the privilege of, of uh, leading that program along with my nurse practitioner, Erica Anadi. Um, we meet regularly sort of in a multidisciplinary fashion um, with a dietitian and other healthcare experts to uh, focus on uh, multidisciplinary care of these patients. And so excited to talk about that. Um, personally, you know, hobby wise, we, I, I like to say it's sort of a pre-kids, post-kids hobby, pre-kids, <laughs> a lot right. of like things that I like to do, hiking, biking, traveling, uh, trying new cuisines. I'm a big fan of foodie, uh, of trying different stuff. Post-kids, honestly, my hobbies are whatever my kids are doing. And so that could be <laughs> soccer. Um, I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. They take up most of my free time. Oftentimes they're spent doing, uh, kids' birthday parties and vis- going to friends' kids' birthday parties. So that takes up pretty much every weekend um, and, and doing stuff with them. So um, those are kind of some of the stuff that I do in terms of my hobbies. And do you promote them getting in the dirt and playing and, get you know, being a, a GI Absolutely. doctor? <laughs> yeah, I'm all about getting, getting kids dirty. Uh, I think uh, a little bit of, you know, bacteria around you is a good thing. Um, uh, I think the general pediatrician can can uh, agree with that. 
Um, and so I think that just makes, uh, makes for a healthier child overall. And so we definitely uh, uh, allow for that in our kids. So is, is that one theory, we're talking today uh, about inflammatory bowel disease. It's a term for two conditions, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, that are characterized by chronic inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. Prolonged inflammation results in damage to the GI tract, and it's so important, as we know, for a child to be diagnosed and treated as soon as possible to avoid scarring. Why is this on the rise? Yeah, there's a lot of theories of why pediatric inflammatory bowel disease is on the rise. It seems to be connected to countries who are developed versus developing countries. And so if you look at the countries of the world that are developed, most of those countries have higher incidences of pediatric inflammatory bowel disease. And so generally speaking, developed countries have um, children that are less exposed to um, environmental antigens and bacteria, viruses, fungi, um, livestock and animal associated antigens as well. Um, if you look at most developing countries, there's a uh, less exposure, sorry, there's more exposure to animals and livestock and being outside in a farm, spending more time outside. Um, there's less antibiotic use in those countries as well, where we have a lot more antibiotic use, which probably destroys our microbiome, the bacteria that we have. Um, there's also some theory of um, vitamin D. And so a lot of developed countries are at higher latitudes uh, in, uh, um, on Earth. And so with that, they have less sunlight exposure and they have less vitamin D. And so we know vitamin D plays a big role in your Im innate immunity, in your immune system and immune system uh, dysregulation. And so there's a lot of theories about how vitamin D deficiency may lend itself towards being more predisposed to immune conditions and autoimmune conditions like inflammatory bowel disease. And so um, I think it's multifactorial. Um, other people believe it may be tied to sort of pesticide use, herbicide use. These are things that are more common in develop, uh, developed countries as opposed to developing countries where you generally eat more farm fresh, um, farm to table, um, and there's less uh, things that farmers have to use to sort of increase crop yield. And so uh, I'm a believer in you are what you eat. And I think if there's something different about what we're eating in terms of what's used to increase crop yield and remove weeds and, and pests and whatnot, that may play a role too. And so I think it, it's sort of multifactorial in that sense. But you can also get a sense from um, you know, patients who have migrated or moved from one country to another. And, and what I mean by that is that you could say that some of this is genetic and maybe some people are just genetically predisposed. But if you take someone who's maybe from a developing country genetically and they're, they're from there, but they've moved to a developed country, you notice that those patients have a higher risk of inflammatory bowel disease as well. And so there seems to be uh, a bigger interplay of not just genetics, but, but your environment and what you're exposed to that makes you um, predisposed. You already have a genetic predisposition and sort of accentuates that predisposition to um, basically allow you to have IBD. And so I think it's, it's, it's all of those things sort of put together. So that's a good thing when I take my daughter to her horseback riding lessons and she's there shoveling hay and Absolutely. mucking out the stall. Get out there. <laughs> yeah, I think getting a little bit sick is a good thing. We've all heard of the hygiene hypothesis. I think not having enough exposure to that leads your immune system to fight itself when it has nothing else to fight. And so obviously within reason, you don't want your kids getting sick for no reason, but I also think not having them be in 
you know, a bubble, so to speak. Um, it's been very hard with the pandemic, and I think yes. that's going to be interesting to see what happens years from now um, from a, a two-year period of reduced exposure and a lot of Purell, what that means long-term. I mean, I think that remains to be seen, and we'll kind of see what that data shows a decade from now. But, uh, you know, those that's sort of one of the harms of that. And to balance, obviously, when we're in a pandemic, you want to make sure you're safe from these viruses and from COVID and, and whatnot. But I think you have to find that balance, too, with living your life and making sure that you expose your children to everything that they can be exposed to. And so we don't know yet if the pandemic has really played a role with it being on the rise Right. Yeah, I think it's too early to say. Um, those studies will come out, you know, inflammatory browsers probably takes uh, a good amount of time to develop. Um, in some patients that have a very aggressive phenotype, um, it probably happens very quickly. So we know that there are infants that can get inflammatory bowel disease. There's even neonatal forms of inflammatory bowel disease. And so, of course, in those instances, things can happen more rapidly. But um, by and large, it's probably a process that takes many months to years. Um, you know, about a quarter of patients uh, are diagnosed with IBD under the age of 20. And so about a quarter are children, essentially. And so um, it does take time for this to develop. It also means that the majority of patients have been living more or less a normal life for years than when they're adults, maybe in their 30s and 40s, they start to have symptoms and they're diagnosed. And so, um, you know, it may take some time for that to develop. And so I think I'm kind of curious to see what happens in the next decade with not just inflammatory bowel disease, but a lot of these other autoimmune conditions, um, you know, in terms of the, their rates of rise uh, in the future too. So symptoms include abdominal pain, diarrhea that can be bloody, possible signs and symptoms also include fever, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, eye and joint pain, tender red bumps on the skin. In children, the disease can result in failure to grow. Is there anything you want to add to that list to for pediatricians to look out for? Yeah, it's a very exhaustive list of yeah. how a patient may present with inflammatory bowel disease. And you mentioned a lot of the uh, presenting signs and symptoms. I think what makes an inflammatory bowel disease a little bit more unique is one of the things you mentioned was fail to thrive or maybe having weight loss. And that would be a, a big red flag in a child especially who's expected to grow with every year in height and in weight. And so when you have a patient that is losing percentiles and is dropping in weight, inflammatory bowel disease as a GI doctor goes very high on my differential as a, possi a possibility, including other mucosal diseases. Um, and then if you also have patients that have reduced height velocity, and so they may not have any symptoms uh, or they may not have weight loss per se, but a pediatrician may notice on their growth chart that their height velocity is decreasing. And there have been some studies that have shown that maybe as many as 10 to 20% of children um, who ended up having inflammatory bowel disease, their first presenting sign was reduced height velocity. They didn't have any symptoms, per se, of any of the things that you mentioned, and not even having weight loss, but they were dropping in height percentiles. And so it's absolutely something that um, general pediatricians always focus on, which is great, which is their growth charts and getting good measurements at every visit. And that can be a sign to clue in on. They may also have, as you mentioned, abdominal pain that can be very diffuse in nature. If it's Crohn's, it may change in location. It may be poorly localized. Some patients that have ileoclonic Crohn's may complain of a right lower quadrant pain near the appendix where your ileum is. If they have more ulcerative colitis symptoms, they may have signs of diarrhea or bloody stools. 
Um, they may also have signs of tenismus or urgency. So tenismus, that sensation of needing to have a stool but not able to pass any stool and no stool comes out, or urgency, that necessity to feel like you need to go to the bathroom and rush to the bathroom to have a stool or bowel movement. And so those may be signs to, to look for for inflammatory bowel disease as well. There's a whole host of extra-intestinal manifestations, which can be arthritis, it could be eye abnormalities or maybe some vision changes. Um, you can have some skin findings. Erythema nodosum is a classic finding on the shins, on the anterior surfaces of the shins. You may have some tender red nodules that are quite tender, um, which is a, uh, a classic extra-intestinal manifestation of IBD. Pyoderma gangrenosum has a very violicious border, um, uh, looks almost like a very bad infection of your skin, which can also be associated with inflammatory bowel disease. Some patients have liver conditions or gallbladder conditions associated with inflammatory bowel disease. They may have something like PSC, which is primary sclerosing cholangitis, and that may be one of the signs that they have inflammatory bowel disease. Um, patients with inflammatory bowel disease are more at risk for nephrolithiasis or kidney stones, and that's something you know to always think about as well. And so there's so many different routes that inflammatory bowel disease can you know, present because it's autoimmune in nature. And just as your intestine is getting attacked by your own immune system, it can start attacking different spots of your body. And um, being aware of kind of the, the, the types of extra intestinal manifestations is really key to clue on. This is a patient that may have inflammatory bowel disease, and I need to refer to a specialist. And if it's not caught uh, quickly, there can be some pretty serious complications. Absolutely. You know, growth abnormalities and growth delays uh, are not to be taken lightly. I know every pediatrician puts a, a huge emphasis on that. Um, there's a lot of psychosocial factors involved with not growing well and not getting good nutrition, developmental um, issues as well. And so there's a huge issue with delaying diagnosis, um, especially when things progress to the point where they're having so much, let's say, diarrhea and hematochesia that they're anemic, they're really tired, they're fatigued, they can't do their regular activities of daily living. They want to just play and do sports and gymnastics and soccer, and they're having to not do that as much. They can't go to school. They're having a lot of missed days of school, so they're falling behind. <clears throat> These are real serious issues. They have sleep abnormalities. They can't sleep well if they're having to stool often or they're having abdominal pain. That affects their schoolwork <clears throat> and their attentiveness during the daytime. So there's a lot of issues with that, not, to, the, le not the least of which to say is if they have untreated disease, <clears throat> they're at risk for infections, and they're at risk for um, having serious complications from uh, severe acute uh, ulcerative colitis in the sense of having perforations and in Crohn's disease, having fistulous tracts uh, and abscesses and whatnot if things are not well controlled. And so the, the types of things that can happen and the spectrum of, uh, of consequences is so broad and so wide that we have to really clue in on these early because we know that earlier diagnosis has a huge positive uh, prognostic value in terms of their long-term outcomes. Um, you know, starting therapy sooner um, likely will be more beneficial, not just in the success rate of that therapy, but in promoting good growth. Um, our goal as a GI doctor and as a general pediatrician is to optimize the uh, height of a, of a child because 
well, you know, post-puberty, they've reached their max height. And so we know that starting therapy sooner, starting some of these biologic therapies earlier has a, uh, a good downstream effect in promoting optimal height uh, as an adult. And so those are really key things to, to look on as well. So uh, earlier diagnosis absolutely is, is in our favor. What about uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication? Can that be a cause or can it exacerbate? It definitely can exacerbate uh, symptoms of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. We try to avoid NSAID use. Ibuprofen typically is the classic one that most children are on because it may cause uh, increased inflammation in your stomach and colitis. They oftentimes in Crohn's have ulcers in their stomach, and they can be very sensitive in their uh, in their stomach with pain associated with NSAIDs. It's difficult because a lot of these patients have abdominal pain complaints, so it's how do you treat these patients. We try to say Tylenol is a better option and maybe extra strength Tylenol, trying a 500-milligram tablet um, you know, or two, up to 650 milligrams for pain, trying other tactics like... Um, you know, uh, heating pads on the abdomen, distraction techniques, especially if they're younger. Sometimes we use antispasmodic medicines like Bentol, which are used in irritable bowel syndrome to help cope with that. But the real thing is just treating the underlying inflammation. And so any of these pain medicines are often just putting a Band-Aid on what's actually going on. And what we really have to do and think about as a GI doc and as pediatricians is say, this inflammation is what's causing them to have these symptoms. And we need to do something to get a better handle on the inflammation such that they don't have that pain in the first place. And why did you devote your career to this? It, what inspired you? Yeah, I don't have any personal experience. A lot of, you know, my colleagues that are in inflammatory bowel disease world or all over the country and world, you know, have personal experience or maybe a, a, a family friend or, or um, a relative. And I don't have any of that, but I, I took care of a lot of these patients in my fellowship program at Vanderbilt. And you sort of, you know, when you're training, you start to associate with certain diagnoses for unclear reasons. Maybe you like the pathophysiology about it. Maybe you like the patient population and the age. I generally like adolescent patients a lot. That's sort of one of my favorite age ranges in pediatrics. And, and a lot of my IBD patients are adolescents. Um, I think that it's a cutting edge field in the sense that there's always new research in IBD world. There's newer drugs and newer medications, new basic science research that lends weight to different therapies. And so I think there's always something on the horizon, which makes it very interesting um, for me to look out for versus something else that has a tried and true solution for, and this is just what you do. And there's nothing else in terms of growth or learning um, or progress in that field. And um, so it, it's always fun to kind of be on the cutting edge of something new. Uh, and I know that it's on the rise and always wanted to be involved with something that's rising to, to help curb that in, in the children that we see. And so inflammatory bowel disease, I also had a great mentor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Dr. Moulton, who was director uh, for some time of IBD there, pediatric IBD. And like a lot of things in medicine, your, you know, your interest comes from mentorship and teaching. And if that person really excites you and, and, and does that for you. And so um, he's someone that was a really big uh, proponent of that interest. And, and IBD can happen at any age, but is adolescence the time to really... Yeah, I think it, it's, uh, you know, about a quarter of patients are diagnosed in pediatrics. And then within that, um, probably most of them are in the 10 to 18 category. Um, I have several patients that are 
three years old, um, give or take, that have inflammatory bowel disease, um, and even under three. Those are rarer conditions, but rising. And it's actual subset of patients called VEO IBD or very early onset IBD. Those, um, those patients are very difficult to treat. They have a very aggressive phenotype. Their um, genetic, um, their genes are very susceptible. The genetics are very susceptible to getting IBD. And so these are patients that have very kind of rare conditions like um, XIAP deficiency or chronic granulomatous disease or IL-10 receptor defects and a lot of these immune pathways. These are chronically patients that uh, uh, have recurrent infections. They may have uh, repeated hospitalizations for pneumonia, bacteremias, otitis medias, and they have to be on recurrent antibiotic therapies, abscesses. And so um, a very challenging patient population, um, but that's still a rare condition. And that's rising, but rare. And so most of them are probably in the adolescent period. And, but to look at for the same symptoms, or is there anything different? <clears throat> yeah, I think um, those patients are probably more affected with growth issues. Um, by the time you're an adolescent, sometimes you can mask the weight loss and growth issues by a poor diet. Um, because it's pretty easy for teenagers to gain weight. Um, you know, the San Antonio diet's it's tried and true way to gain weight. It's very easy to. And they like fast food. And they like fast food. And so <laughs> you can often, you know, mask that that weight loss by just eating poorly. Um, but usually when they're really young, three, four, five years of age, they're going to be very sensitive to the foods you eat and the caloric intake that you need, and you just won't be able to catch up enough with what you're eating. And so uh, typically these patients have a lot of growth issues. Well, tell me about your IBD clinic. It's at University Health's Robert B. Green Campus, RBG, downtown. Yeah, so we have a, a multidisciplinary clinic where we have a, a nurse practitioner, myself, a dietitian, a social worker, in the process of getting a psychologist or counseling support as well, since that's a, such a big part of inflammatory bowel disease care. Um, and we th- we approach it from a multidisciplinary fashion because IBD management has to be done in that fashion. Um, it's it's important to think about the patient from many different aspects. That's something I learned from, from medical school and to think of the patient holistically. So we try to approach IBD patients as such too. It helps to hear, hear it from many different sources too. A lot of patients need things regurgitated to them multiple times. These are complex conditions. Parents have a lot of questions. A lot of the medicines are hard to pronounce. It's a very complex field. Sometimes just hearing things repeatedly from different people uh, is also a, a huge thing. And so we have a clinic there. Um, I also see patients at Gateway Clinic uh, that you mentioned uh, on the corner of Wurzbach and Fredericksburg. And if they have any suspicion for IBD and it's easier to get into that clinic, I'm happy to see them uh, initially there to start the workup for these patients, blood work, stool stuff, scope, et cetera. And then as that diagnosis evolves and, and, and it's cemented to transition them to our IBD clinic. Um, we do scopes for IBD clinic in a couple locations, um, one at downtown at the Robert B. Green campus and also at uh, University Hospital. And so we have a couple locations in the med, ce- uh, in, the med center in downtown, uh, respectively. And, you know, eventually we'll want to get involved in um, other things with inflammatory paralysis, including research studies. And so one of the cool things that we're hoping to get involved with is something called Improved Care Now. Uh, yes, tell me about that. Okay. Yeah. So Improved Care Now is a collaborative community of um, 
providers that take care of patients, that pediatric patients with inflammatory bowel disease, there are sensors all over the country and in, in, in several other countries as well. Uh, they have about 100 sensors. And the goal of the program is, as the name implies, is improve the care of these pediatric and IBD patients. And in a, in a fashion that sort of is, is supportive and collaborative. And so it's, it's, what that means is working together with other centers and collaborating on our data of our patient populations, what worked, what hasn't worked, um, how do we achieve corticosteroid-free remission, which is one of the home, hallmark goals of pediatric IBD care, and how can we work in a consortium to improve outcomes. And so well, there is not a center for improved care now in all of San Antonio. There are several GI clinics and GI programs in San Antonio, and, and those clinics also have uh, patients that take care of IBD patients, but there is no Improved Care Now Center in San Antonio. There's one in Dallas, Houston, and Austin. And so I'd like our program to be the first one to insert itself into the Improved Care Now network. It's a big process to be enrolled. It uh, is a lot of funding money. It is a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of IRB approval process. Um, I've done... Uh, untold packets of uh, informational stuff to fill out and paperwork. It's been insane. And so we're in the process of applying for that. But we have some institutional support, at least, uh, to do that. Just have to go through some other hurdles to, to join the center. Um, and so that's something I'm really hoping we can be involved with um, to really promote our inflammatory bowel disease center, improve the care of our patients, serve as a referral institution for other cities, the Valley and border towns to come to our center to take care of these patients. And when will you find out if you get that? And is it looking promising? It's looking promising. I think uh, hopefully in the next couple months, um, we should have an approval. A lot of more regulatory compliance stuff that has to be sorted out. Um, a lot of patient-sensitive information that has to go through IRB approval process since you're part of a multi-center place. Um, and so that's something that's hopefully down the horizon that we'll be involved with. Jay, the holidays can be particularly difficult for children with IBD, not necessarily the most wonderful time for them uh, with the parties and food and all of the, you know, the extra things going on in the holidays. Do you have any advice yeah, there? it's a it's a time it's an interesting time period of the year. Thanksgiving till Christmas, it's uh, you know obviously food is a big issue. A lot of bad food, which can trigger a lot of symptoms. It's a time that uh, a lot of patients and kids are feeling more depressed and anxious. Um, as much as the holidays can bring us together, it can also be alienating um, as well, or anxiety producing as well as we can all probably account to. And these are patients that have a lot of those mental health issues as well. And, um, you know, so we like to make sure in all of our patients, regardless of time of the year, that we involve themselves, involve our patients with mental health counselors and psychologists because it's such a big issue and, and a big deal. Um, we're in the process of starting hopefully some screening questionnaires to screen for some of these conditions so that if things are positive, we may end up referring to uh, uh, a expert sooner rather than later because we may be sometimes, unfortunately, the only people that actually bring up these things or it's not brought up otherwise, or maybe the parent brings it up because these patients are going through so many medications and they're on, you know, doing cleanouts for scopes and they're getting admitted to the hospital and they have side effects of this stuff and they just don't sleep well. 
and they're falling behind in school. And so they have so many of this stuff going on. And so this can be a tough time period as well. And so maybe a little bit extra vigilance during this period is, is something that we always preach. Before we move on to some cases, I love inspirational quotes. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you, is there a quote that you want to share, something that inspires you or is pertinent to what we're talking about today? Yeah, one of the things that really inspires me, it's, this, it's a quote by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and he was a French writer and a pilot. And one of his quotes that really resonates with me is, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. And I think that really, um, you know, inspires me so much that if you want, you know, someone to do something, let's say in this case to build a ship, you know, rather than telling them do this, do this, do this, follow this order, that's not how you get a ship to be made. Um, if you teach them and inspire them to yearn for the sea and they have that, you know, inspiration from that, then they will build a ship because it's coming from within. And I think what stands to me is that increase in, in wonder. Um, part of why I like pediatrics so much is that kids are drawn to wonder and they're drawn to curiosity. And I think, you know, if you're able to make them feel like something else is of value and they create a wonder in something, they're going to naturally do the thing that goes towards that route on their own without being told what to do. Um, that higher goal. That higher goal. And it, and it sort of inspires them to do it from within. And sort of, you know, my kids are five and three are trying to decide on schools and whatnot and where do we go from here, which school system and, and whatnot. It's a, it's a complex thing. But one of the things that I think uh, is important in, in a school and in teaching children is do they create that wonder in a child? Because a lot of children... They don't want to learn something because they don't find the value in it. You know, teaching calculus to a teenager is very difficult. But they already don't find the value. They're like, why do I have to learn this? Um, it's not going to do – I'm never going to have to use this. And it's hard enough to teach calculus to someone, and it's even harder if they don't even find the value in it. And if you can teach them and show them how it is extremely valuable, how it can serve as something that can give them great um, value in their life and they can use and it can have many tangential effects, then they're going to have more of an appreciation for it and learn it. And so I think that's true of children and part of why I got into pediatrics and it's something that inspires me. And does that inspire you when you're teaching residents as well? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I focus a lot on medical student education and uh, residence education. It's a big um, professional uh, interest of mine. And students are always yearning for something. They're always trying to find um, where that edge lies. They're always so curious. And that curiosity is what lends itself towards learning more and more. And if you lose that curiosity, which you know, sometimes you see with your colleagues, or you may see with an older colleague who's just ready to go through the motions of work, then, then you're not going to push yourself to continue to evolve in your field and learn in your field. And so um, students, and why I love working with students is they're always testing themselves. They're always looking for that next um, horizon and looking ahead. And so it's something that inspires me to keep myself focused and to keep myself learning, uh, to, to keep up, honestly, with them. And the pediatricians who are listening and providers and the work that you're doing to help with IBD, 
you're improving the lives of children where it's hard to focus on calculus or basketball or when you're in pain and or running to the bathroom every five minutes. Yeah, right? no, it's it's so part and parcel to your life. I mean, you everything else is secondary. We take health for granted. And, you know, the, the lucky of us that have not had any issues when we were children could just focus on school and friends and be, you know, be let that be. And unfortunately, that's not the case, as we know, for a lot of children who have to go through this process day in, day out while they're doing everything else. And so, you know, you, I've learned to sort of put myself in their shoes, uh, especially when they're complaining of these, these symptoms and they're recurrent. Um, and, and say if I was dealing with this stuff and I was at work and having to leave, you know, in the middle of work or um, not have enough sleep all night and then show up for a full day of clinic, how would I feel? Um, you know, what would be my activity level? What would be my energy level? What would be my mood and my own mental health? And so it really kind of um, uh, you start to empathize with these children that are going through it, which makes you drive even more to make sure you do what you can to um, set them up, uh, set them up for success. I love that. Well, let's take a case. Sure. A 17 year old girl, Sally is experiencing worsening dysphagia, frequent regurgitation and heartburn. She has lost 4.5 kilograms over the past year. Her medical history is significant for her having Raynaud phenomenon, pulmonary fibrosis and sclerodactyly. Yeah, so this is a case <coughs> to move shift shift gears away from inflammatory bowel disease, and I'll talk maybe in a in a subsequent case about IBD. This is uh, a patient that is presenting with an upper GI issue, and so kind of wanted to walk through a case that maybe you guys, uh, as a general pediatrician, may see, and how we would work it up, <coughs> what we're thinking of, and so dysphagia is a very common complaint of a lot of children. Um, they may just complain of food feeling like it's stuck in the food pipe, that when they're eating, they have to take smaller bites. They have to chew their food more frequently. They have to take sips of water in between. Maybe they don't even notice it, but their parents notice that their child is taking longer to eat than typical. They take 45 minutes to finish a meal, and the, the child doesn't really recognize it. They're just adapting to the symptom. And so dysphagia is a very common issue. Um, and, you know, in a patient like this, we always have to think about inflammatory, uh, sorry, uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, which is uh, one of the more common conditions that causes dysphagia in children. And so what stands out here in this case is that um, this is a patient that's lost weight, so lost about four and a half kilos over the past year. 10 pounds is, is a substantial weight loss for a 17-year-old in a one-year time period, especially, obviously, if it's unintentional. And she has a history of Raynaud's phenomenon, uh, pulmonary fibrosis and sclerodactyly. And so this is a patient that we think of um, that has scleroderma, and uh, especially with those three things that I mentioned. Raynaud's phenomenon, as you guys are probably very aware, kind of a, an issue with the small vessels, typically distally, that cause you to have very pale fingers and hands, uh, especially uh, with respect to cold weather. Um, and then sclerodactyly having sort of almost like uh, contractures of your hands and fingers. And these are classic sort of signs of uh, scleroderma. And so patients with scleroderma can have a lot of uh, significant gastrointestinal dysmotility issues, uh, including esophageal issues. And so um, one of the things that we often start with is something like a barium esophagram study to evaluate the upper GI tract, so the esophagus here. And it gives you an indirect way of looking at 
the motility of the esophagus without doing a proper motility study. A barium esophagram is not a proper motility study, but by following that contrast down, you can get some sense at how well things move and if there's a dilation or not and if there's a stricture or a blockage or not. And it kind of can answer a lot of those questions. And so, and a patient like this ended up having a very dilated esophagus on an esophagram study. There was decreased peristalsis. And then whenever the patient was in the upright position, there was a rapid flow of that contrast, which is, uh, you know, not uncommon, especially with, you know, gravity finally moving through over an area that wasn't moving with the esophagus itself uh, having peristalsis um, then moving. And so this is a patient that uh, underwent an upper endoscopy. We have to look at the esophagus to look for signs of stricture, to look for eosinophilic inflammation, to see if there's any fibrosis, is there reflux esophagitis present, things of that nature. And so the upper scope in this patient showed some moderate reflux esophagitis on biopsies um, without eosinophilic inflammation or fibrosis. And, you know, the reflux esophagitis is, is fairly common with patients that have scleroderma. Over a long period of time, they start to have some ch mucosal changes, uh, either grossly and or under the microscope. We make sure they don't have eosinophilic esophagitis, which would need a different therapy. And then something else we can do um, is manometry study, esophageal manometry study where we do pressure testing. We do um, do endoflip, which is a new technology that um, we started at our institution, and it gives you a sense of the distensibility of your esophagus and the dilation and pressure readings of the esophagus. And it can, it can show you how well your esophageal motility is, how well you can move things through your esophagus. And so um, in a patient like this, this would uh, typically have a decreased lower esophageal pressure and then have uh, diminished peristalsis in the distal esophagus. And so um, this is kind of a, a story of a patient that has scleroderma. We often work in conjunction with a rheumatologist because a lot of the conditions um, of scleroderma overlap with what they see, uh, including things with joint issues. And the medication management is often done in conjunction with them. We sometimes try pro-motility agents. Um, we've tried medicines like uh, Reglan. Some of these patients have esophageal strictures that require dilations. Some of these patients that are sensitive rheumatology, excuse me, also have other conditions that lend itself towards a rheumatological medication um, that are used for arthritis conditions that can help with the esophagus as well. And so it, it's helpful uh, in my field to work with many different specialists, which is one of the benefits of working at UT Health San Antonio is we work in a, in a multidisciplinary fashion. And so having um, their input on a patient like this would also be very valuable. We're ready to move on to our second case. Uh, Alex, a teenager presents with diffused abdominal pain. Yeah, and you know, this is a, a very common complaint um, a general pediatrician probably sees a patient with abdominal pain complaints as a new visit or a new symptom, probably most days of the week, if I had to venture. Um, right. And so it's a very challenging symptom because the possibilities are, are very wide. The spectrum of possibilities is, is, very, is just very wide. And so I can kind of th uh, talk through how I would approach a patient with this. And so they may just present with the symptom of pain everywhere. And uh, like most things in medicine, you have to get a really good history and exam 
before working through anything else. And so a lot of times we have to ask questions such as when you say it's everywhere, is there any specific spot that you could point to? A lot of kids will say, yeah, it just kind of hurts when they use their hand. And sometimes you have to ask a clarifying question. If you were to use a finger to point to where you feel the pain the most, where do you feel it? And that may lend itself towards a specific spot because they may feel pain everywhere, but that pain may be referred and referred pain. And it may just be diffuse because it's spreading, but there's really one or two specific spots that helps localize it. And so that's a very important indicator to know. Is this a right upper quadrant pain to look for biliary or liver pathology? Am I thinking about something that's more lower specific pain, things like colitis or um, constipation, et cetera? And so you have to kind of ask more clarifying questions. When is that pain worse? So is it pain is the pain worse after a meal? Do they have pain during after a certain specific type of food that they're eating? Do they have any food diary that they have actually written down? These are the things that I've eaten. This is when I have symptoms. And parents that bring that sort of information um, can provide a lot of insight to what may be a trigger uh, to this pain. Someone who has pain with greasy foods may have a gallbladder pathology or an irritable bowel syndrome pathology. Maybe I have a lot of patients that get abdominal pain, but it's really heartburn that they're complaining of after eating Takis and spicy Cheetos. And so you have to direct yourself, too, with what they're eating, I think, is another clue. I read the ingredients on Takis, and I was just... It seems scary. Yes. It's hard when you can't pronounce good. everything. Yeah. So, um, you know, asking a lot of other questions, their bowel habits is really key to know how often are they stooling. Um, you know, teenagers are very um, hesitant to, to bring forth this information, especially in front of their parents, and the parents right. don't know. If it's a five-year-old, they have a good handle on their child's bowel habits, but not so much in adolescence. So trying to figure out how often are they stooling? What's the consistency of that stool? Does it, do they have pain when they stool? Um, do they strain? Do they have tenismus or urgency? Do they ever check to see if there's blood or not? What color is the blood? Is it dark or is it uh, bright or red? All of these things have to be looked at uh, in terms of a history. And in an exam, it's trying to localize the pain to see if you can localize that pain better. Do, they, do you feel any masses, um, any specific areas of tenderness? Do they have rebound tenderness? Is there a positive Murphy sign um, to help you clue in on stuff? Um, the possibilities are very wide, as we mentioned. You know, a, a very common complaint, uh, sorry, a very common diagnosis for this complaint uh, is functional abdominal pain, which is the most common cause of abdominal pain in children. And FAP is how it's, it's termed, um, different than familial adenomatous polyposis syndromes of adult, uh, and, and children get it too, but that's uh, much less common. FAP, functional abdominal pain, extremely common. And, you know, it's, it's absolutely tied to a lot of psychosocial factors and psychological factors. Um, we know that stress can be a huge trigger for functional abdominal pain, lack of sleep, it could be tied to your mood, um, drama at school, bullying behavior, change in home environment, um, stressful situations that the family is going through, financial difficulties that they're going through, um, sometimes um, you know social issues of immigration and, and other things can play a big role, separate households can play a big role. And so these are all things that lend itself towards functional abdominal pain, schoolwork, um, fatigue of stress and stress related to school, worrying about school, anxiety, depression. 
Um, and so functional abdominal pain is very high on it the all list comes, here. So much comes back to our gut. So much comes back to your gut. We know there's a huge connection between your brain and your gut. Your brain gut access is very well known. How we feel in our head, a lot of those same neurotransmitters are in our gut as well. And so we know that with IBS patients that are going through a period of stress and they start to have diarrhea, it's finals week. They've got diarrhea or they're about to give a speech, they start vomiting, they just have some performance anxiety or, or public speaking anxiety, uh, which is common. And so we know that it's not like your, your colon knows it's finals week, I need to have diarrhea. It's that your brain, your mind does specifically, and your mind can cause you to have GI symptoms. And with that, abdominal pain is a very common symptom that you can get. Uh, in addition to a lot of common things like nausea and vomiting and maybe some looser stools or constipation. And so thinking about that is really high on the list. Of course, we talked about inflammatory bowel disease. That's going to be on the differential as well. Patients have celiac disease. Celiac may be as high as 1% of the population, which is really high if you think about how many people live in San Antonio and how many possible patients have celiac. And they may just present with abdominal pain and a change in their stool habits. Thinking about peptic ulcer disease, gastritis, um, heartburn, H. pylori, these are all very likely possibilities. Gallbladder pathology, having cholelithiasis, having biliary dyskinesia, um, which may be tied to IBS. Having pancreatitis, some patients may just present with very mild symptoms of pancreatitis, and it's really acute recurrent pancreatitis that's causing them to, to have these symptoms. We've had patients with multiple ER visits for abdominal pain, and the pancreas has never been evaluated, and it turns out that they've had recurrent episodes of pancreatitis that just weren't managed and ended up having chronic pancreatitis and some scarring of the pancreas over repeated bouts of pancreatitis. So these are a lot of things that have to be on the differential. Uh, a female patient thinking about gynecological issues can absolutely cause lower abdominal pain and, and referred pain. Pregnancy is obviously on the differential as well. Kidney stones, UTIs are also on the differential. And so it's a very broad differential. I try to localize it based on a good history exam and initial blood work. Sometimes we have to do the scope route, which helps us rule out and rule in a lot of things. And so we kind of take generally a stepwise approach, but if the patient has severe symptoms or very chronic symptoms, or they have weight loss, we generally do a scope in conjunction with blood and stool studies and imaging because um, of, uh, of getting the workup started sooner rather than later. And so that's kind of how I would think about a patient like this. It's a very common complaint. Let's go to our third case and final case for this episode. A 12-year-old boy, Jude, comes in with his mom to see his pediatric practitioner. The mom is concerned because he falls asleep after school, after basketball practice, and even fell asleep in the exam room while waiting for the visit today. His appetite is not great, and he's small for his age. Jude's mom is also small. She's 5'2". When visiting grandparents in the country, he seems to have more energy and can go on hikes. But his parents are both small. What, what would you do? recommend? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> we see, you know, failure to thrive and weight loss and these sort of issues are common uh, chief complaint uh, and, and, and source of referrals uh, of where, why we see patients. And so I think, you know, every pediatrician does a good job of looking at the growth charts and getting a sense of, are we dropping percentiles or not? And failure to thrive, thinking about it in, is it an intake issue? Is it an output issue? Is it a consumption issue? 
and maybe multifactorial. They may not intake enough. Getting a good dietary history is really key in what they're eating. They may not have a very good balanced diet. They may be skipping meals. They may not have good access to food, which a lot of unfortunate, uh, unfortunately, a lot of our patients have a, a, a poor access to food or uh, because of financial difficulty. So really thinking about that. You may have an output issue. Maybe they're inputting enough. They have diarrhea. Maybe they have a lot of vomiting for a whole, whole host of reasons. And that can lend itself towards not growing and having failure to thrive. And maybe it's an actual consumption issue or malabsorption issue. So they have celiac or a malabsorptive condition, a disaccharidase deficiency, inflammatory bowel disease, a cardiac condition, hyperthyroidism, a lot of things that can lend itself towards higher caloric needs and that are not able to keep up. And so in a patient like this, you know, you also have to think about psychosocial factors. Um, you mentioned that the patient feels very tired at home, but at grandparents' house feels a lot better. Is that because they feel more comfortable in that environment? Is that because they're on vacation when they visit grandparents and they're in a better mood and they have better sleep habits and that's why they feel better and more energetic? Is there a, an issue with the home environment? Is it a high-stress environment? Is there a lot of... Um, fighting going on? Is there a lot of um, concerning behavior going on? And they hence present themselves with fatigue um, and just a loss of appetite at home. So thinking about that is, I think, really key. Um, you'd mentioned about fatigue and that they, you know, after basketball practice and school and whatnot. And, you know, always thinking about are, are, is the child just doing too many activities? And so I think a lot of parents, uh, myself, are guilty of that too, is just enrolling our children in as many things. We want to expose them to as much as we can. And sometimes we overdo it. And they may just be so tired from everything else they have to do. They've got tutoring, they've got Kumon, they've got this class. They've, they're, they're trying to be an A student. They're doing um, extracurricular activities. They're doing sports. And it may just be too much of a load on them. Um, what are their sleep habits like, um, which is often overlooked? Are they going to bed at a reasonable hour? Or are they one of those people that's on their phone till 2 a.m. TikToking? That's going to lend itself towards a lot of fatigue symptoms. Um, so do they have good sleep hygiene? Are they getting to bed at a reasonable hour? Eight to nine hours of sleep would be the optimum, and most kids don't get it. And so that's also uh, a big concern as well. And say if you have, though, you have 20 more patients to see, I mean, and you don't know, I mean, would this safe thing be to do to refer this patient to a GI doctor? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the challenges is, and talking to general pediatricians uh, at length, is that, you know, time is a... They're always crunched for time, and and we are too to a certain extent. But I think one of the benefits of a consulting practice is that the system is set up to have a little bit more time to educate and discuss issues with a family, and try to figure out these details a little bit better. And so, you know, when when pediatricians ask me, well, what what things should I handle versus you know, I don't want to just send you anything, and then I should have handled it and take taken care of it. And, and, and I say, no, we're more than happy to see uh, any GI patient, even the most simple patient to the most complex. There's no re you know, reason to say that was a dumb referral or that should have been handled by the general pediatrician. Why are you sending me this patient? I am more than happy to do even a one-time consult, see a patient, discuss something with them, and send the patient back. And not just from a time constraint perspective, but sometimes families just need to hear it from a GI doctor. They feel like they're concerns are being validated. They feel like their um, concerns are being heard. 
Um, we can discuss things at length with them. We can maybe have a dietitian consult with them in the clinic. And so uh, it's not necessarily something different that I would do in terms of a workup or a management. It may be very similar things that a general pediatrician would do, but hearing it from a different person's perspective may um, get a buy-in for a patient. And so I think that's uh, something that, you know, we're happy to see patients um, that they're not at all sure on, on with growth issues and, and happy to work that out. You'd mentioned also that, you know, this family, the mom may be small for age. And so that's something to think about, too, I think, too, is that some of this may be genetic, constitutional. And, um, you know, knowing where your parent's size is, maybe when they were that age, what they are now, if they're siblings, are they of similar size? Um, are they growing along their own curve? Those are the sort of things that we look at, too, in this patient. Well, and I know you pretty much answered what was going to be our anonymous question from a pediatrician. But she was asking, you know, what are the top three things I can handle in my clinic? I don't need to refer out to a GI doctor. And you're saying it's, you know, it can really be a great idea for really anything GI related for a patient and the parents or caregivers to hear from a GI doctor in more detail. Uh, or what, what advice would you have there? Are there some things that, you know, usually can be handled in the community pediatric setting? Yeah, I think common things that general pediatricians see that we also see would be constipation and reflux are very common. A lot of our patient population is constipated. Um, I always joke with parents that we should have premixed Miralax in our water supply. <laughs> uh, it's just so common. And, you know, a lot of it's tied to probably diet, in my opinion. And some of it's also tied to behavioral issues in the sense that a lot of teenagers and even younger kids don't take the time to go to the bathroom and, and have a bowel movement. It's a very rushed lifestyle. It's a very busy day with school. No kid is using the bathroom at school to have a bowel movement. They don't even have time for it, let alone they don't want the environment for it. And so you get into this cycle where you're, you know, you wake up, it's a rush time to get ready. You're out the door. You haven't even taken time to really just sit down and relax and have a bowel movement. You run, go to school, you're not going all day. You come home and it's busy. You're doing soccer practice. You're doing extracurricular activities. Um, you're doing your homework. You sleep all night and then it's the same cycle again. So functional constipation is super high uh, on the list of things that we see and that pediatricians see. And I think it's important to recognize what's functional constipation versus something that's more pathologic. And functional constipation, you know, is generally tied to these factors, diet, behavioral stuff, stool withholding, especially in a, in a, in a younger child who is now is potty trained but is starting first grade, kindergarten, first grade, second grade time period in a new environment especially. And so thinking about um, constipation and knowing what's functional constipation is key. Um, if a patient is very young and is constipated, that may be more of a red flag that we would want to see a patient for, especially these infants that are constipated. Um, you have infants that are under six month of, months of life that have severe constipation. Um, we absolutely like to see these patients because we may need to think about things that are anatomic and things that are uh, like Hirschsprung's disease, um, cystic fibrosis, et cetera, that may be causing this. And so some clues for that may be uh, a patient who was born in the hospital but in the first 48 hours of life did not pass a stool or did not pass their meconium. Um, that would be a, a, one of the red flag signs. 
genetic conditions in the family. So if there's a family history of this, we know Hirschsprung's is genetic, um, cystic fibrosis is genetic as well. And so knowing those kind of risk factors are key. And so those would be signs that this is not functional constipation and we need to have a closer look at. Um, reflux is a very common issue from infancy to, adult, uh, to adolescence. A lot of in, uh, adolescents have heartburn and reflux mostly tied to diet, unsurprisingly, and caffeine use, soda use, spicy foods, greasy foods, the classic triggers, eating really late at night, going to sleep right after eating a huge snack meal in bed and then passing out. Those are, you know, the classic things. Um, but these infants that have a lot of reflux, and so we see a lot of infants with reflux and spitting up, and, um, you know, we, we counsel a lot of these patients on it. What I would say is that, you know, ref- a certain degree of reflux is normal in infancy, especially under six months of life when you're almost exclusively reliant on a liquid diet with formula or breast milk, which is very easy to come up. And so uh, you don't even have a very high distance for it to come up. The distance between your stomach to your mouth is very small in a two, four-month-old. In addition to having um, your LES tone being not as strong, to having a stomach that can't quite hold enough liquid as it is, and it's small, and we sometimes overfeed, and a liquid diet that's easy to, to come up because they haven't introduced solids yet or they're very, you know, they don't, they don't eat a lot of food enough um, to where they're um, not as reliant on liquid. And so... Um, you know, looking at their growth parameters, like always, is, is key. Knowing if they're overfeeding is also key. Um, you know, if they have so much reflux and it's after every feed, but they're a chunky baby and they're growing so well, they're actually very high on the growth chart, they may be feeding too much. Um, if they um, have other signs of milk protein allergy, they may just have reflux. But um, some patients may have mucousy stools or blood in their stool or a family history of food allergies or eczema, and they may have a milk allergy, uh, milk protein allergy that's causing them to have reflux. And so sometimes we'll talk about options of different formulas. This is where I think it's helpful to, to come to a GI clinic and meet with a dietitian because we, we can talk to them about the num- 30, 40, 50 different formulas that exist, what's the best fit. Um, through their insurance, through WIC, et cetera, to go to. Some, some infants may benefit from a histamine blocker, an H2 blocker therapy. So Pepsid is a very commonly used medicine. It may not really reduce the um, episodes of reflux, but it may make them more happy spitter-uppers. And so if you have these irritable infants, um, that when they spit up, they may benefit from BID Pepsid to help alleviate those symptoms, these colicky babies potentially, especially when they're lying down sleeping. And so things to think about, you know, sometimes we advocate for thickening formula. Um, You can use a little bit of rice cereal or oat cereal. Um, That, you know, some pediatricians believe it does much. Others say it does, you know, it provides some value. I'm kind of on the idea that it's something that's worth a trial. Um, And if you notice no benefit, then it's reasonable to to stop it. Some patients get very constipated when they're on these added rice formulas and whatnot, or they have excessive weight gain because of the added calories if they add rice cereal. And so there are some other formulas that have added rice cereal but are still calorically at the same density. Um, And so it doesn't increase the amount of calories. They don't overfeed them. And so those are some options that, that we think about. But my view of reflux in infant is a lot of it comes down to pacing and feeding slowly and burping and taking your time to feed and allowing your stomach to empty. 
And, you know, I, as a parent myself, I, I can sympathize. It's hard to have patience. And the easy route is just to chug a bottle down, feed quickly, and in five minutes be done. And then that lends itself often to, to a lot of reflux. And so the more you can drag that out for uh, a parent to say, can we make it into a minimum 15-minute feed, have a five-minute burping period, let, let the stomach empty as best as it can into the small intestine, allow some gas to pass, kill some time, and then feed the remainder half and extend it, you have a better chance of success with reflux. And then another common thing that we see is fatty liver disease, which is you know, unfortunately become an epidemic in this country, in a lot of developed countries. Um, particularly here in San Antonio. <clears throat> particularly here in San Antonio, we're one of the hotbeds in the country for fatty liver um, disease. Did you have a five-year-old patient? We've had, Yeah, I've had very young patients with evidence of fatty liver disease. It's quite scary. The diet plays a role. Genetics plays a role. Hispanic population is genetically predisposed to it as it is. And we know that it's tied to some level of insulin resistance. And so it's not unlike things like metabolic syndromes or diabetes in that sense. And so diets that are higher in carbs and sugar are definitely going to lend itself towards a higher risk of NAFLD. And so NAFLD is more of a, a spectrum, a disease. And within NAFLD, you can have just fatty changes of the liver. So you may just have fatty deposition. Um, and then so uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver. Um, or some hepatic steatosis, you may then progress to NASH, N-A-S-H, or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, where you actually have inflammation of the liver itself. Um, and that's uh, inflammation and or scarring of the liver. And then it can lead to cirrhosis. It can be quite scary. And so it's a, one of the more leading causes of liver transplant in adults. And it's an emerging uh, cause of liver transplant in children as we have these under 18-year-olds who have had such bad fatty liver disease over a several-year period that they've actually got scarring of the liver and cirrhosis. And they have reduced liver um, function. And so um, we see a lot of patients with fatty liver disease. We do like a workup um, of other potential causes of why their liver enzymes may be elevated. And so another common um, referral uh, is elevated liver enzymes. And so we're more than happy to see these patients to look through the common patho uh, uh, conditions that lend it sort of towards elevated liver enzymes, very multifactorial as well, things like Wilson's disease, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, um, autoimmune hepatitis, hepatitis ABC, fatty liver disease, um, sometimes some vascular abnormalities, celiac disease, a lot of conditions that can lend it sort of, uh, itself towards that. Um, biliary pathology. And so that's another thing that we commonly see. Are you still seeing liver inflammation caused by a virus <coughs> that doesn't usually cause severe liver inflammation? Are Ye there any more cases? Yeah, we've had several. Unfortunately, there was a big rash of viral uh, hepatitis conditions in the past year or two, and then a rise in a specific type of adenovirus um, that caused uh, liver failure in pediatrics. And we had um, a few patients in our ICU with that. And so, um, you know, that's definitely on the rise. COVID can cause elevated liver enzymes pretty markedly as well. Um, influenza can as well. We just recently had a patient admitted to our ICU with influenza-induced uh, acute liver failure. And so um, a lot of the viruses are on the rise right now in the last month or two at least, and will probably continue for a couple months. And so 
um, infection etiolo- infectious etiologies for elevated liver enzymes uh, is, is definitely high on the list as well. So when do you know when to do a liver test if you're a pediatric practitioner in the community? Yeah, it's a good question to ask is should I be looking for elevated liver enzymes in a patient that has a viral illness? And that's a challenging one because if we did it on every patient, that would be LFTs on every child practically uh, and so many patients. And so I don't think it's reasonable to check liver enzymes on every child that comes in with an infection because you're going to see so many patients with otitis media and other complaints and fever. And oftentimes those conditions themselves cause a transient elevation that's not concerning. And, it, and so it may not tell you much. But if they have any signs of jaundice, sclerolecturis, dark urine, pale stools, um, those would be very clear signs that we need to think about looking at liver enzymes, specifically their bilirubin levels, to look at a total and direct bilirubin to, to get a sense of how much the liver is inflamed and affected by this virus. And so, um, you know, we're always able to be reached out to by telephone. I've had pediatricians call our clinic or call me directly or, or the on-call PEGI in our institution and say, hey, just wanted to run by this patient with you. Can I curbside you and ask you this question? Um, you know, some some patients, sorry, some pediatricians have our direct number or cell phone and they just reach out. We're more than happy to work through our call center to kind of walk through a patient. What sort of close follow-up should they have? Should they just need a repeat check? Should they need a bigger workup? Should they be seen and referred to us? Should and the they be pediatrics seen one call, or sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. Uh, the pediatrics one call at University Hospital. They Absolutely, it, yeah. Say, I'd like to talk to the GI doctor on call. Absolutely. And there's there's someone on call 24-7 for Peds GI, and we're happy to walk through a case. Um, you know, should that patient be seen sooner in our clinic, we can facilitate that or um, send a referral. Should they be sent to the ER? Because this is something that needs maybe urgent inpatient admission potentially with one of our inpatient physicians. And so, um, you know, happy to talk through any of these uh, cases with them um, because I know it's it can, it can be challenging as a general pediatrician. Sometimes you have to put your hand in a lot of cookie jars, and it, it's it's it, and there's a lot of time crunch and it's hard to work through everything. And it's a busy clinic, and so we try to make things as easy as possible to uh, access uh, our providers. Well, Jay, this has all been so insightful. I feel lucky to be sitting here talking to you today. To wrap it up, and we're looking out to the sea. To go back to the quote. Uh, that you you read, which I thought was great. What does the future hold for IBD? What's out there, big picture? Yeah, um, I think most like there's a couple things that I think um, we're headed towards in the next fifty years. Um, one is going to be um, what's already started, which is newer and newer medications that have higher efficacy rates that target the inflammation at its root as opposed to the downstream effects of that inflammation so that the inflammation cascade doesn't even happen or progress to any foreseeable level. And so that comes with understanding of basic science research of what's causing the inflammation, the pathways and ways to block it, clinical trials in patients and real people, and durability durability and safety studies to see how well this works over a long period of time. It's been going on for a couple decades. The next 50 years are going to be really, really, really key on that. And so that's something that I think is really exciting. The second is potentially a cure for these conditions. And so there's no cure for Crohn's disease. We have ways to manage it. But um, it would be very interesting to note if there's specific ways we could not just manage this, but uh, cure it so that patients don't have to deal with these conditions long-term. 
And so that would be probably the gold standard kind of thing, pie in the sky kind of goal to have for inflammatory bowel disease. Um, and, and it remains to be seen if that's, uh, if that's the case. And I think the third thing maybe to think about is your microbiome and the types of bacteria that exist. We talked at the beginning part of the podcast about kind of the hygiene hypothesis and bacterial antigen exposure and viruses and whatnot and what role that plays. And it very well may play a role in its solution as well. And it'll be interesting to note if there's specific um, targeted therapies for changing the types of microbiome and your diversity that you have that may be curative for this, not just for inflammatory bowel disease, but a whole host of other GI conditions potentially. Um, and so I think there's a lot of fun stuff on the horizon that I'm really looking forward to. Dr. Jay Shaw, pediatric IBD director at UT Health San Antonio, who's now seeing patients at UT Health's Wurzbach Gateway Clinic. Thank you so much for being here today on Pediatrics Now. Thank you, Holly. It was a great experience. I hope I was able to provide some insight, and uh, it was great to have this conversation with you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. Pediatrics Now is produced by Nick Mary. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.